So welcome back to Reflection as a Service. I'm Paul Merrill, and I'm joined by my co-host... That's me, James Jeffers. As always, my partner in crime. How are you doing this week, James? I'm doing really good. Did you know we were recording this in the future? I I had a thought that was going to come up. You thought that would come up? Why? Because I can't resist the whole t- temporal distortion part of the podcast. Space-time continuum has been disrupted. That's right, yeah. So this is actually, we're recording it um, at a time earlier than you all will hear it, probably. I believe this is episode 11 no, episode 12. This we is episode 12, 12. Yeah, this is 12. And I checked the other day. We have like 370 some odd listens. That's so crazy. And I never would have thought when we started this that 375 people would spend 45 minutes of their time listening to us. We really appreciate that too. I, I definitely do. And by the way, Hussein is still one of our top listeners. Hussein? Hussein. Is or Hussein out on SoundCloud. Oh, shout out to Hussein, man. Yeah, and I got some really good feedback several times from Brian Goad, and I want to mention that. I really appreciate that, and uh, Brian works over at Digital Smiths and does a terrific job with their testing. I hope I'm allowed to say that and divulge personal information about him, but he's a cool guy. Um, tonight, we have a special guest. We have Adam Crane from Autumn Attack. Adam is an old friend of mine, and we go back several years now. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce him, but Autumn Attack is, uh, is a really special company that he started, and I'm interested in hearing about his software engineering background. I think, I think we all are, yeah. and, and as well as his entrepreneurship um, in this and getting started out on his own. So uh, real quick, Adam Crane is a software engineer and security researcher with a diverse automation background. In 2012, he started his own venture, Autumn Attack, to improve the adoption of open source software in the electric utility space. Adam's focus over the last two years has been in the SCADA protocol vulnerable, vulnerability research known as Project Robust. Since April 2013, vulnerabilities have been identified in protocol implementations and products sold by more than 20 vendors. Adam has a general interest in improving software quality in industrial control systems, or ICS, both in individual products and in standards that define them. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks. So, um, you know, I like we said, we've known you for a while, or I've known you for a while, uh, and I know your your early background. You you know a friend of mine is how we, we met. Actually, Vic, that was on one of the most recent episodes, mm-hmm. and you guys went to the Durham School of Math and Science together, is that right? Yep. Not only that, we were also um, roommates in college for at least two or three years. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And, and you guys were both at the, uh, the blue school, the light blue school. Yep, I don't want to start. <laughs> you can say that. I don't. Want, I don't want to start any any warfare here on your podcast. So we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, neither one of James and I are both Florida employees. I went to Florida State, and he went to Florida, so we don't care about Carolina. At all. We're all in the we're all in the ACC. We, well, he's not. He's oh, not. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah. But we do share a hatred of another Florida ACC school. We all hate Miami. Because you can't spell scum without U-M. Oh, oh I'm sorry. You said that. Oh. We just lost our entire Miami list in the area of like one podcast listener. Um, but, but anyway, <laughs> look, um, we've known each other for a while. And i got to tell you, I don't know if you recognize how special that group from the Durham School of Math and Science is. I've only been around them like one time. And sitting down with these folks and being a part of their conversation is... Like nothing else I've really experienced. Like you talked to the students or the faculty? No, no. This was his class. I think oh, okay. Yours and Vic's class that, that was together. And they are some of the brightest people that I've ever been around. And you just feel automatically, you know, you're the dumbest one in the room. <laughs> like you just know it real quick. I've actually, I've actually 
So, uh, but they don't make you feel that way. No, I don't no, mean no. I don't mean it that way. I've, so I worked with well, at least one person who's graduated from the NC State School of Science Mathematics. Actually, two people, and they're both pretty smart, smart folks. So my personal experience says, yeah, this is a good group of folks. Oh, they were from the Durham School of Mathematics and Sciences. Well, well the NC State School. Gotcha. Okay. And we've even went over there because my son was kind of interested in looking into that as well. So that's cool. No, I had a great experience there, especially being from kind of a rural county they had they had quotas so it was much easier for me to get in <laughs> i didn't know that i figured you were from around here in the triangle somewhere no no uh hickory so yeah. okay all right cool well we're gonna you know i i love hearing about your background but i want to hear more about you and your world this podcast is about entrepreneurship and software engineering and every once in a while we get in a test um i you and i talked a couple times around the time that you started automatech and maybe you can tell us kind of how that started and, and where it came from. Yeah, sure. So um, briefly, I was actually a physics major in college um, and kind of got into the world of software engineering by tinkering with some of the, uh, the toys in the physics department. Specifically, I guess to my last two years of college and then two years after college, I was developing software for telescopes and instrumentation for telescopes. And that was my introduction to the world of software engineering. And then I crammed a whole bunch of CS courses like into one extra semester. <laughs> you um, only did one extra semester. Well, I had been taking... <laughs> I did more than one. I'm just going to pass up right now. Yeah, I've been taking um, kind of some, some CS courses kind of as electives as I had been going through school. But then crammed in some of the more kind of upper level ones like... Uh, computer graphics and uh, computation theory and some of those and into kind of one extra the ones I was interested in an extra semester and decided that I kind of liked the toys better than the science so that's cool. yeah that, that's how I kind of got interested in uh, programming specifically for automation okay and then uh, then after school um, the professor I've been working with connected me an entrepreneur who had been working in the electric power industry for uh, decades and uh, I got to work as a consultant for him, kind of putting out fires for a large vendor where they screwed up with customers and introduced me to seeing, you know, all kinds of different systems and looking at some really bad code and trying to, try, trying to fix it for their customers kind of on the hot seat. And then, you know, I bounced through a, a number of small startups with kind of, um, I'd say, the same group of people yeah. for a few years until ultimately got a little frustrated with that and said, well... You know, I, I know this industry well enough. I know enough about, I, I know enough people in it. I know enough in the top technology in it. And I have an open source project that I run that I think that I can actually um, monetize in some ways for support. And that's kind of what sent me off, um, sent me off on my own in 2012. So, so open source, this was an open source tool within ICS, which is Industrial Control Systems. Is that right? Yeah, specifically it was a... Um, a protocol stack implementation for a protocol that gets used between control centers at electric utilities and uh, substations. Okay. So it's kind of that lingua franca between control centers and substations. And kind of at the application layer of this protocol, you can think of it as it just acquires measurement data. You know, you want to know what the voltage or current value is on a line somewhere out in your service territory. And then every now and then, you know, maybe via some automated process or an actual operator wants to change the state of something in the field, they still send a control message down to do something like uh, raise the voltage on a transformer or trip a breaker. 
So that's the, that's the type of protocol this, this protocol known as DNP3 was. And the company that I was with, I kind of convinced management to uh, release this open into open source because we needed it for a product internally, but selling selling protocol stacks was not our core business model. Right. So, so the, the, the actual devices out on the, in the world, that the transformers and whatever, they're actually reading this. So they're hardwired for a specific protocol that's coming over the wire to them. Is that right? Well, a lot of them are interfaced with the physical world. So if you're talking about something like a relay, like the, the device that actually um, would trip a breaker when, say, a tree limb falls on a line or something to protect the system... Those are wired to things called like current and potential transducers that drop those very, very high voltages and very, very large amounts of amperage down to low-level signals that the device can actually put into an A to D, an analog to digital converter, and turn that into a digital number that you can then send back to the control center. Sure. But that's reading it. You can also send messages from the control center. Right. Up to the- so from the control center to the field, you can do things like tell the breaker to, to open. Yeah. Yeah. See, so I can see where it would be fun, like as, uh, I don't know, a 16-year-old kid with way too much time and too much brain power and too much computing power to send messages to the control center to say that, you know, voltage had spiked or, or, or went to zero or I don't know, whatever. But the other way around sounds much more precarious to me. That's the way that people most uh, mostly worry about when they think about attacking the systems and the attacker's going to get on this network and they're going to trip all the breakers and everyone's going to lose power, Right. That's tends to be not the way that people have, have attacked these systems. It, oh, really? it turns out that attackers kind of don't want to be detected. And some of the the few kind of known attacks that we do know about these systems, the goal has been more to kind of observe and cause long term damage over a longer period of time. Oh. But um, how how would you how would you do damage over a long period of time? Well, I think the classic example, and if we were kind of within the community that I work in. I'd have to drink just for saying this word. But <laughs> the classic example would Stuxnet, which was a virus that people that turned up in 2010. And it took quite a while for the, the community to analyze and figure out what it actually was. But it turned out to be weaponized malware developed by the U.S. and Israel to go after the Iranian nuclear program. Oh, so this thing, yeah, this is the one that spawned the centrifuges in Iran until they broke, right? Right. And we, we did that? We did that. The US not, did well, that. not me personally, but, <laughs> but our, our country definitely participated in that. And with that piece of malware, they didn't want to be detected instantly. They wanted to cause sure. losses as, for as long as they, they possibly could. So it even involved spoofing the values back to the... To the operators. Oh, I got you. So the operators would look at the speed of the centrifuge and say, "Looks good to me." Looks good to me. We don't. We don't know why these things are breaking. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> why is it smelling smoke every time I walk near it? Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, that that's really interesting. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about: is modifying how this equipment works at a very um, low level at the at the protocol level. And your open source tool that you had created. Exposes vulnerabilities, or now this this tool that I originally released with my next company was was just a protocol stack implementation. I mean, the goal of this was a vendor who made that embedded product or who made the control center software to talk to all the things in the field wouldn't have to roll it themselves. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. I mean, and they were all. Everybody had rolled their own. There were there were proprietary versions of this before this. Oh, happened. there were just there, there were no many many different versions, and uh, there isn't a lot of open source in this industry when it comes to the industry specific specifications. And this is a massively complicated protocol to write. Um, it's actually an IEEE standard. If you go to IEEE and you buy the spec, you're going to get an 1100 page PDF. Oh, wow. I mean, even massive compared to some of these RFCs and things that you read. Yeah, it's like so, legislation. Stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it turns out, you know, you know how things go in software. You get a limited budget. You do the best you can. You know, your manager's not going to necessarily give you the time to do all this additional testing and, and security testing and so forth. So what you have is many, many vendors implementing the same thing poorly. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah. So, so then... You you're releasing this, or you want to release this out to the open source world, and at some point you realize, well, I've got this implementation that probably needs to be tested. Is that kind of how this? Yeah, you know, when you, when you put something out that you've invested a huge amount of your time in into, you want to feel like it's good quality, right? You're going to be doing something in open source. It's in a fishbowl now. You want to have some confidence that it's you know going to stand up to um, people beating on it, right? So I wrote to, to validate it, kind of in some of my spare time, I wrote a, a testing tool called a, a fuzzer. And we can talk about what a fuzzer is, but to kind of test some of the corner cases in the protocol. And it turned out that a friend of mine at a major power utility tested it on some other implementations and we started finding a lot of bugs. Uh. So a fuzzer is just a, a, a piece of code, some some mechanism that's throwing what looks like random information at the system under test. Yeah. That's um, my understanding. I can't remember the name of the professor who, who, who coined the phrase or came up with it. I think it was a professor at Wisconsin or Michigan back in the, the mid-80s. But they noticed basically that whenever there was a storm and they had some electrical noise on things, occasionally programs would crash. <laughs> and they, they basically said, well, you know, if I can randomly flip some bits and, you know, corrupt some memory or whatever. Why can't I just use this as a testing technique? Yeah. And since that time, fuzzing has kind of evolved and specialized and there's different types of fuzzers. Um, the, the simplest kinds of things you could think of for fuzzing file formats, mm. right? So... Everybody knows, like, you know, don't open PDFs from people you don't know, right? Well, why is that? Well, it's because the software that parses the PDF has a bug in it. Someone's found that bug, and they've found a way to weaponize it by inserting executable code into the PDF and getting it running on your machine because of a bad parser somewhere. Hmm. So, you know, one example of, of fuzzing is just to take a whole bunch of, you know, good PDFs, randomly flip, flip bits in them, and then feed them into your software and look for crashes. Yeah. So that I mean that's fuzzing in a nutshell, and the type of fuzzing that we actually did was where we actually modeled the protocol, like all the different fields in it, because it's a published standard, and then done kind of permutation testing where we're putting kind of invalid values into different different test runs into to places that look like they're vulnerable. Right. Yeah. We just so just to rewind for a second earlier, I guess it was mentioned that you had monetized or you had productized that. So I mean, how do you this is an interesting question. So you have an open source product. How are you turning it into a source of revenue for yourself and your company? With the open source project that I run, um, it's Apache license. So that purely becomes either a company is using it and they need a feature addition. You know, that's 
definitely not scalable, but can pay nice by the hour. Um, and then occasionally support. So I just kind of do that on the side. And when I get those jobs, it's nice, but it's definitely not like a revenue stream that I rely on. Since that time, uh, the testing tool itself, the fuzzers for these different protocols has actually turned into um, a small product offering. Because you can actually take that testing tool, roll it up, and then sell it to other people implementing these protocols. Yeah. So I can sell that to you know big industrial people like you know General Electric or Schneider Electric or people that sell these products so that they can you know hammer on them before they release it to customers. Right. And, and occasionally I also license that tool to the end user, like utilities themselves, because they do that for during procurement. They'll test a product oh, right. before they commit to buying $50 million worth of X, Y, or Z and say, oh, we found this bug and we're not going to buy it until you fix this. That's, so, that's a really nice strategy. Yeah. So, to, to, <laughs> well, it's free advertising too because then they, you know, the utility, they have, what did you oh, use I, to break this? I oh, it's this, right? Yeah. So yeah, That's nice. That's nice. So, um, so, so you talked about vendors that already have offerings. Um, they have their own proprietary implementation. How many of these vendors are we talking about? Because this seems like a really small space in terms of number of vendors that are out there. It's a very small space compared to um, the internet and sort of the consumer-facing products that people see on a daily basis. I would think the market is large in terms of dollars, but the number of vendors seems really small. You'd be surprised. Um, I mean, Western Schneider Electric... See, those, those are the big ones, but there's lots of regional and small vendors. However, the, the trend has been, I would say, over the last 10 years is massive consolidation has been taking place. Mm-hmm. Buyouts. Like, like with everywhere else. Like everywhere else, buyouts left and right, and uh, the, the kind of smaller vendors are kind of disappearing or being absorbed. Yeah. Yeah. So how does that affect you? It, it sounds like there, there are plenty of vendors, and you're, you're working with vendors, whether they're large or small. Um, but yeah. does it, have you seen that as a limiting factor or something different in your business model, the, the number of vendors? Well, you know, the, the model that I've chosen to go with is kind of a uh, subscription model. You pay to have the software on a single seat, like a machine-bound license for a year. Mm-hmm. And based on the tier of the organization, I also offer like an enterprise, like license, kind of unlimited license type things. as a break-even point after a certain number of machine-bound licenses. It's just $1 million. No, no, no. <laughs> my no, just went to my mouth, by the way. Well, you know, this... <laughs> Austin Power style. Once again, alienating our 20-something listeners. They'll catch up. Okay. <laughs> go look up Austin Powers. He was really cool. Uh, when he says look up, he means go to YouTube and type in Austin Powers. <laughs> Sorry. We had a thing on the last episode about... You haven't listened to it yet, but alienating 20-something listeners. I don't mean to. We just do it. This is definitely not a... ever going to be like a huge scalable business selling testing tools in a small market to a small number of companies. But for me, that's not really, you know, you know my goal. I, I pair this with the research, raising awareness about the, the insecurities in this space. And, you know, for, for a small team and myself, it's a great niche a great niche to be in. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people in entrepreneurship say, I have to come up with this huge idea and I have to go get venture capital. But if you're a software engineer and you pick a small niche, there's a lot of advantages too. You know, advantages being that 
you're probably not going to have, you know, somebody come after you with some kind of like crazy patent lawsuit, something or other. Because you sure. kind of ride under the radar when you're in a, in a, in a, a small niche for a while yeah. at least. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So you haven't had anybody coming after you with patents then? No. Did you patent anything? No, I think that um, it's a small enough market. I think I'm just going to kind of rely on prior art. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about it, if you don't mind going back to when you started the company. Because, um, once again, you know, our podcast, Reflection as a Service, you're listening to right now, we're about entrepreneurship, software development. And we do a little bit of stuff about test and automated testing as well. But, um, you know, I know for myself, I always want to hear stories of why someone did what they did. And I know what my story is. I know a little bit about James's story, probably not as much as I think I do. Uh, maybe more than I think I do. Who knows? Um, but what is kind of your story in getting this going? Like, what 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 was it that that pushed you out onto your own and to getting this thing going? And is it where does it come from? For me, I think it's primarily a drive to be independent and dictate my own terms for how I work. To be honest. It, it wasn't that I had some great idea when I started this. Um, software quality testing and security stuff wasn't even on my radar. Um, really? It was, that wasn't not, even on your radar? Not even on my radar. Like the discoveries with um, all the different implementations that we tested, that was completely serendipitous. So and, for but, me... But yeah, that's where you end up. That's where I ended up, and it was a complete it was a complete surprise. And there seems to be a lot of need in that space, but it was definitely not planned. Sure. Well, and it seems like you're hitting this market at a really good time. And one of the things that James and I talk about, probably offline more than we do online, and we need to talk about this online, um, I think. But it seems to me, you know, a, a big one of the things that I keep coming back to with entrepreneurship and with the people who are able to succeed and build their companies is that they keep at it and they keep at it and they keep at it and eventually the persistence pays off in the form of preparation meeting opportunity which is what some people call luck and it sounds to me that you actually encountered that luck at what what I feel like is an early point in your entrepreneurial world is, is that right? Probably so so I left my ex-employer in August 2012 and had a couple of small contracts lined up when I left, but definitely was hungry to to find you know service based work. And then uh, come April 2013, we started finding um, some of these bugs in these uh, you know proprietary implementations. And basically, everything that I had, everything else went on hold because this was this because was just new. Is well, that what it was? I knew that the, I knew that it was going to be important. Other people were telling me that it was going to be important, and uh, 2013 was a rough year financially because of that. We were doing a lot of testing and coordinating with um, uh, Homeland Security's uh, CERT for free, um, and it didn't really even start paying dividends until probably early 2014. Yeah, and you and I haven't talked too much in the last few years about, about how things are going. It seems like things are going really well. I see you guys in the news. I see uh, you have an article that was up on Wired a while back, which is a really good article. And we'll make sure to link that on the website so that people can read it and read more about what you guys do. You know, it's interesting to hear your story. And it's interesting to hear why you went this way. That there was some element of opportunity or luck involved. And I think that happens 
for most folks, if, if I can, when, when it happens, that's, that's one of the big things that happens is you have a little bit of luck along the way. Um, maybe what are some of the things that you could share about, about your move into entrepreneurship that have been particularly challenging or things that have been particularly rewarding? You talked a little bit about how you would like to direct your own activities. I feel very strongly in the same way about yeah. my activities. I'm sure James does as well. Um, I mean, we've all, we're all pretty sharp guys here and feel like we can, we can produce things. What were some of the other things that you found challenging along the way? The biggest challenges haven't been technology. For me, they've been things like uh, understanding the market I'm in, trying to set a price point for a product that, you know, balances number of sales with, you know, revenue per sale and trying to trying to figure out what the market will bear. Mm -hmm. um, God, just even, even just keeping up with the books and the, the learning curve there. I mean, I, I, you know, never done these little things little things like keeping the books yeah right yeah, right and then suddenly you find yourself six months behind and you know you're <laughs> you can't you're depressed because it feels like some kind of insurmountable <laughs> obstacle it's definitely still climbing 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 that learning curve and, I, and you know i think the next steps will be this sort of the, the trepidation of well i've got enough more than enough work for myself and i'm feeling stretched pretty thin you know at what point is it right to start looking for for some help. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I mean, so so you're on the verge of that. It sounds like. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life. Aside, <laughs> aside from aside from proposing to my wife, whom I love, and made absolutely the right decision, and knew that I was making the decision, the right decision at the time. Um, I don't want to suffer any consequences for <laughs> so that was the scariest decision because for me that decision is for life. I don't know how other people are. For me, that's for life. It's one time only. I wanted to make sure it was right. I want to make sure that my kids are raised right, whatever. Hiring an employee was the next scariest thing and probably even more scary than that because it comes out of your pocket if it doesn't work out. Yeah, like that, that's, that's right. That's all there is to it. It comes out of your right. pocket I mean, and you have to sacrifice. You usually hire them before you're ready. If, if you're a company of 10 with proportional revenue for 10, one new employee, not such a big deal. When you're a company of one, and you're doubling, literally yes. doubling your size, it's yeah. a huge deal. Because the volatility of it, right? Yeah. I mean, if that person doesn't perform, it's not just that they underperformed as one of 10 and they were... It's 50% of your... Or worse, what if they take away from your productivity? And most of the time they will for a certain period of time because you're bringing them on and you have to train them up, right? Yeah. So you're taking away from what is now 50% of the productivity of the, of the, of the team... Well, it's not only up if that doesn't come back, and and to add on to the, um, you know, the the risk to yourself and the you know consternation that that can cause. There's also the feeling of a sense of responsibility to the person you're hiring. You know, like Absolutely. I've, I've got the funnel full now, and things look great for the year. But what happens if things dry up next year? And and when they change, because they change every single year. Yeah. Yep. What happens when they change? And then it comes back to: Do I have enough? Well, maybe, I mean, maybe I should ask you how you're, how you're doing that, how you're moving through it and, and coping with that idea. I am batting it around right now. I know that I'm going to be stretched very thin. The, the thing that I think gives me a little bit of optimism is being able to balance service work with a product offering. You know, you hire somebody, you never want them to be on the bench, right? Yeah. You want them always to be engaged and working on something. So the way I think I'm going to do that is having them both be able to work on some of the um, 
contract-based service work I have and when that's not available for some reason investing in, in the product offering. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's great, especially when you've established a income for the, the product offering. James, I always feel like I'm kind of leaving, not leaving enough room for you here. I, well, I'm kind of fascinated by the, the technical, you know, domain because, you know, like I asked earlier about like like why someone would would go for a long term, uh, undetected, you know, penetration into industrial control systems, and you're like, well, because they want to do the most amount of damage before the, the shot, the spotlight gets shined on them, and they get squashed by an effort to eradicate it. So, uh, and you know, I think we were talking about before the podcast, we talked about how. You know, there's a, there's a great deal of FUD because newspapers love to sell things that make people afraid, right? So you look at a landscape of how the media presents the, the state of our infrastructure in terms of like how vulnerable it is to attack and manipulation from people that would like to degrade it or destroy it. Okay, so what's the reality? I mean, you're looking at it from somebody who's got a pretty unique perspective on it. What, what's, what's your sage uh, outlook here? Well, I mean, one thing that might be surprising to... Um you know, your listeners, if I ask the question, you know, how, how good is software in this space? This software that's running our power grid or water systems or oil and gas pipelines, how robust is that software? Our hospitals, our... Right, yeah. man- manufacturing plants, those things. Um, people would be like, yeah, this stuff is important. It's got to be rock solid, right? But, you know, the, the tragic answer is, is, is no. A lot of this stuff is running unpatched... Windows, XP, whatever, embedded systems that maybe not have been patched in 15 years. You know, this... Shutter. You know, yes. (laughs) There's a lot of historical reasons for that, but you got to think about, well, why did the quality of software on the internet, you know, improve over time? Well, because there were adversaries. Mm -hmm. There were people that were constantly raising the bar on quality and pointing out defects. And I, I think that is just now starting to happen on these sort of parallel private networks that run all our critical infrastructure. You know, I don't, I think without adversaries, you don't, nobody asks for quality. They ask for functional quality that, you know, when I do A, it should do B, but the security aspect, it should do A, when I do A, it should be B and nothing else is, is, is sorely, is sorely missing. Yeah. Maybe, uh, getting back into the technical part, like you were bringing up, James, um, it sounds like you're telling us, Adam, that most of this is not tested nearly as well as your typical application that's out there in the world that lots of users use. Is the is that a is that a part of is why is that is that a part of the culture of that group? Is it you think it's because they haven't had adversaries yet, or I mean, why do you think that's happening? Because not enough focus it's, has been put there. It's a mixture of a lot of things. Um, the customer hasn't asked for it is, is pretty much always the answer to why software doesn't do something, right? And until the customers demand a certain level of quality, we probably won't see it improve. They haven't had an adversary. At some level, it is cultural. In this, in this particular industry, we, they tend to take electrical engineers with more of a classical E background and cross-train them as software engineers. So I think a lot of the sort of basic skills with uh, unit testing and so forth are, are just not quite there as you might see in, in other software shops. Um, it's a different kind of thinking too, I think. Yeah. When right. I, when I sit down with a mechanical engineer or a civil engineer or an electronic engineer, electric, electrical engineer, 
any of those, when I sit down across the table from those folks, I know that my brain works significantly differently than theirs. And I think people do what they are rather than are what they do. Um, so, I mean, I would imagine it would be much more difficult for an electrical engineer to sit down and write software in a way that we, we would think is typical in a matured software shop. Um, I would think that would yeah. be difficult and it would not be natural and it would be very contrary to whatever they normally would do with yep. projects. I wonder if that's because like in, in like in a lot of domains we work with, um, there's typically like a, a commercial or e-commerce aspect. So you're dealing with bank accounts, credit cards, like like the the money um, proximity to the, the transaction is pretty close, right? So if there's something goes wrong there, there's a very high potential that people will have money drained from their bank account. Where it seems like with ICS, it's a lo- much longer damage, you know, to the bank account. Like, yeah, you're going to take down uh, an electrical facility. That will have to be rebuilt, but it's not like Joe Blow Consumer has to suddenly say, oh, I've been defrauded, you know, $5,000, and you go to the credit card company and have to deal with that. Uh, so maybe that, that that kind of lends to the difficulty of, like, the, like why is the state of ICS? Well, I, I think there's that? actually a, a lot more at stake with these systems. I mean, money can be money can be replaced. Sure, it, it ultimately inconveniences the customer, but if there's credit card fraud, you get that money back. With, yeah. with some of these systems, you have people working on site at these plants. Um, that could, there was, could be put in jeopardy. Their lives, their, their, their lives could be put at risk. We're talking about some very nasty processes potentially. But I think the difference is, is that historically these systems were completely, quote unquote, air gapped. Right? They they weren't connected to the internet. They weren't being bridged to other systems in kind of interesting ways. No, they are. And suddenly they are. Suddenly they are. Yeah. And um, that's 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 changing people's thinking. Yeah. So I have a question for you. All right, so I have wondered for a long time about the blackout that happened up in the Midwest um, back in 2002 or 2003. And I think the typical story was that it was some malfunction. Was it, do you know anything about that? Is there, I, I would imagine you're deeply involved in this industry, you know, all the ins and outs of it more so than other people. That, the, the Northeast blackout in 2002, 2003 was uh, definitely not malicious. Okay. Everyone pretty much accepts that is uh, some bad relay settings that caused a cascading, basically a cascading outage. And in fact, there are kind of very few examples of um, attacks on these systems. You hear a lot of things in the industry, but you don't hear a lot of details. And part of the reason is that people don't share them oh. when they do happen, right? Between and, power companies. Right, there's there's a complete lack of sharing, not just between like private sector to private sector, but definitely public sector to private sector, government to industry. There's very little sharing. Oh, but things have been happening. I mean, just this past uh, October, the um, Ukrainian power grid was attacked, and there was some huge blackouts from a targeted malware attack. <laughs> there are kind of increasing incidents of, of this happening. And I, I think when it comes to the topic of cyber weapons, it probably becomes more of a deterrence kind of thing. Yeah. You know, we have them, you have them, let's not use them on each other kind of thing. Gotcha. So you, do you believe that the U.S. has not used them in other environments? Besides Stuxnet? Yes. Uh, I don't know. I just didn't know, being an industry insider, if you might have more. But I, I, I have to imagine that there's still probably a very large, you know, budget 
<laughs> set aside to do this. Oh, right? you know, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. A budget like within the United States or outside of the United States? Both. Yeah. Both. Yeah. So why wouldn't why wouldn't the I mean, you're doing all this work. You know this protocol. You probably know several of them by now, and, and are studying across um, across the board in this industry. Have you been con? Maybe we're going way off the rails with this, but it's so interesting to me. Have you been contacted by these agencies? Or, and if you can't, obviously, if you can't talk, no, about I it, mean, talk about it. But it seems like if you're the guy, I have not been contacted guy. by any of the sort of uh, offensive. Three letter agencies. Okay, just now we, we worked extensively with uh, DHS on the defensive side, like doing just just vulnerability coordination. We'd say this product has this bug. They talk to the vendor, and that's a very valuable role that they play because they they prevent a Fortune 500 company from you know stomping you to death with lawyers, right? They provide that coordination role. Everybody, right. we're all in this, you know, working together, you know, please don't kill the researcher kind of thing. And eventually when the, you know, there's a patch available and advisory comes out and, you know, everyone's patting each other on the back. But no, I haven't been contacted by anybody on the, on the offensive side. And then, yeah. and that's, and I mean, you, your company is all about the defensive side and about securing these companies and, and securing us as individuals and our power grid and, and what we live off of every day. And there's a certain amount of trust and credibility that you have to build with that. And um, it, it's the fact that, been the fact that we that. didn't rush out and just drop a whole bunch of vulnerabilities into the public, I think, has built uh, a lot of um, a lot of trust between myself, my research partner, and um, some of the vendors and and people that we work with. Yeah, yeah. We typically could go to the folks that you think are the most vulnerable and tell them privately. By the way. We've detected these vulnerabilities. You probably want to address them. And on this date, we're going to publicly talk about them and give them some time. Or how does that work? We didn't really put a... We didn't dictate a timeline to anyone. It was basically agreed upon that uh, no advisory or information would be released until the vendor had a patch available. Mm -hmm. And at that point, um, uh, DHS would actually put out the advisory. So we completely put the, the ball kind of into their court on disclosure. Um, the way that DHS ICS certs operates is they always do the advisory. And, and the purpose there is just to notify the end users that have to patch this stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and we got, you know, extremely varied responses from the different vendors. Some people had a patch ready in two weeks. Some people took a year some people deprecated entire product lines because they didn't want to have to support it anymore. Oh, wow. So wow. They, they were just, you know, all different responses you can imagine. And, you know, on the, on one side we'd get, oh, thanks for reporting this to this. You can test the patch for us when it comes out all the way to, you know, you're a terrible person. Why do you do this? Why do you hate America? I mean, just, just all kinds of just, and the only difference I can point to wasn't the size of the company was whether or not they'd been through this process before really so the ones who had not been through it before were asking you why you hate America yes they had you wow. know, a complete knee jerk reaction you know all of our customers are on private network these are private systems this doesn't why matter do this why are you trying to smear our reputation and they're, and they're not thinking about the fact that there are 15 other major vendors out there that have to deal with the same thing right yeah they're just one of many that have to deal with this. 
Right. So some vendors, you know, they, they have a security program. You can go to their website and there'll be a security, you know, at company email address to contact. And, you know, with those vendors, things are probably going to go pretty well and smoothly. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought keeps coming back to me as we're talking here. And I think we've, we've really got a good podcast here. This is really interesting to me. And uh, we may have to have you back on when I've had some time to study a little bit more about ICS and maybe James has too, so we can ask some more more even more interesting questions but um the thought keeps coming back into my head we were together with some friends playing um i think black ops and i remember you getting out of the game to sit on your laptop and work and this is before you kicked your company off this was just you being fascinated by this and i have this feeling that you're one of those folks that you get an idea in your head and you just can't stop until you accomplish it, or, or you just get absolutely focused on something and you just go at it. Is that is that right? I mean, is, am I reading that right? That's fairly accurate, probably to my own detriment at times. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like something that supported you in doing this. I mean, it seems like a strength in, in moving forward on this. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, I think the trick is to uh, kind of expand that into other protocols and and build a kind of minimally viable product. But, you know, like I said, I'm not trying to build a a massively scalable company here. It's going to be a small niche product, but then at the same time, I'm also kind of establishing myself as that go-to guy or or go-to consultant for these kind of issues in that space. So that's, that's kind of the long-term play, right? Right. And, And you also mentioned that you're at the point where you're about ready to expand and bring on person number two and what does that person look like to you to me that that needs to be somebody who's a self-starter i'm not going to hire based on a particular tool chain or technology i I want someone that is bright is interested and uh someone that'll thrive in an environment where they're going to get a lot of mentoring and they're going to have very a very flexible a very flexible work environment. Someone that's going to appreciate to appreciate that versus going into a large, you know, company and becoming part of the yeah, going into a cube farm basically. Yeah. And why is someone? Why is this person going to want to work with Automatac? Well, I'm not going to underpay underpay people. I'm not going to be a company that's going to be able to lie and say, oh, you know, I can I'm going to pay you 20% below the market rate, but you're going to get all these great stock options, right? <laughs> no, I mean... Because your goal isn't to go public. No, it's not to go public. It's to be a, um, a, a niche consulting firm and, and build a small, successful, you know, private company. So I, the things that I can offer them are, you know, the mentoring, the flexible work, competitive pay, um, I don't, I don't know what people want much more than that, you know, unless they're, unless they're going off and being their own boss. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, I think the mentoring would be a major part of that. The knowledge exchange, um, just from knowing you, I know that you're incredibly smart and you would probably be very fun to work with. Um, and I, I know that you're a fun guy and I also know that you're very focused and I know that there are people who like to be focused and need help in focusing. Um, and all that seems like it could be a big, uh, draw, um, I think the trick for hiring is, uh, for me, it's going to be not to be in a rush to, to do it, to put the feelers out there interviewing. I mean, who knows? Maybe the right person walks, you know, requests an interview and walks in in the first week. They might be listening to this right now. Or, you know, maybe you go through a bunch of interviews and you just don't quite 
you know, feel feel a good fit, and it takes takes six months. I just don't want to be in a position where I have to get, you know, have to have that hire. I just kind yeah. of want to wait for the right person to 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 come along. Yeah, and that's tough in in the market as it is today for software engineers. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else do you have, James? Well, I don't know. Like, um, I was looking at the the list of of things here. And I think the thing that's interesting to me is, like you said, you get the varied reactions from the vendors. Like, why do you hate America? That's great. Um, but you know, assuming assuming that the vendors, like, yeah, we know it's a problem. I mean, what? Why would they take longer than usual? Is it is it merely that they don't have a deep technical staff to put the software fixes in place, or they're just like we have? It's such because a they can't launch it with a configured configuration <laughs> configuration flag. Gosh, cognac! This is yeah, the second class. We're you. never doing that anymore. Well, I think there's a few reasons for that. I mean, a, a lot of times, uh, some of these vendors have poor or no testing suite, so if they have to make some fairly invasive changes to something, there's not a whole lot of confidence, and the thing has to go through some kind of long QA cycle mm-hmm. to say, you know, this is ready for release again. And in some of the cases, they may have had the fix for a long time. But they don't want to put a security patch out. They just want to fold this into their next product release. Yeah. Right? Kind of like, yeah. you know, in the in the foot in the footnotes of the release, oh by the way, there was this remotely exploitable buffer overrun, blah 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 blah. <laughs> okay, but, but this is the part that always gets me right. Because like you're you're a guy who's doing it basically in a benevolent fashion. And you're kinda of like saying, guys, I found this just by randomly flipping bits. Right? I mean I, I'm not saying that you don't actively look at the code and and, and do you know intelligent you know picking of parts where it can go wrong? But you're like, I basically found this vulnerability, and, and I'm telling you because I'm because I live in the area where the power has to stay on. <laughs> and you're like, you know, if there is if there is somebody out there who's intent on doing harm, they're not gonna wait for you to yeah. fix it. You know, so why would you wait? Well, this this particular industry is probably in terms of security maturity 15 years behind like the internet and consumer software okay it's, it's really far it's really far back so when I, when I when I tell people about selling this software uh, testing tools a lot of times I don't even frame it as security I, I frame it as robustness testing because you hear you hear all these things in the industry all the time like oh I hooked vendor A's device up to vendors B and vendor A's device sent a message that vendor B had never seen before and vendor B you know pooped its pants, you know? So I would just like to be able to prevent situations like that, (laughs) like where there's not even a malicious adversary who's crafting these like nasty messages. Sure. So that's, you know, that's step number one is just to increase robustness to keep, you know, to improve uptime on some of these systems. And then security is, is a benefit. Gotcha. I'm sure that the, that the vendors themselves don't want to be the, the exception that, you know, if they do come under intentional attack, they don't want to be the vendor that says like, "Well, we did know about it, but we just drug we drug our feet," right. and then we ended yeah. up being the one the one power uh, provider well, that went out. You it's, know, it's not something that's going to change quickly. I mean, these big vendors have these massive legacy code bases that they've never tested that way. Yeah, right. So they're like, it works. You, you, you can't just go in and say, oh, we're going to do security testing now. Well, maybe if you have some new greenfield project on something or other, but ripping apart you know, millions of lines of legacy code and trying to do security audits is just not, 
it's not in the budget on day one. They have to do this incrementally, and they have to have a plan for how they're going to add testing to all the new things that they're going to do. Right. right. And one thing that did pop up, you mentioned they're 15 years behind the internet security, and i got to tell you, the, the general state of security for internet applications sucks. Yep. It's awful. It's not as bad as it is I mean, right it's, now. It's not a topic that we we actually got to touch on yet, but it's worth mentioning. When you think about the internet, you think about things like uh, cryptography and HTTPS, and we have we have security. On most of these systems, there is no security. Like These are just large, flat networks with protocols that have no authentication whatsoever. So that, that's going to be a big push over you know the coming years is to actually add security onto these networks so when an attacker gets on, they just don't have run of the whole network. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think everything's built on Telnet and FTP. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you, just think, you can think of it. You can think of it that way, absolutely. Wow. That's sobering. It is. It is. I, I think a lot of people will be really impressed at what you've shared and, and I mean, I didn't know a lot of this stuff. I, I've known that by knowing you that there is a vulnerability within the electric industry, within the grid. Um, and the specific open source project is Project Rubos? So there's two, there's two projects. There's uh, what I call OpenDNP3. That's an open implementation of the DNP3 protocol, which is that protocol that we talked about that's from control centers to substations. Okay. And then Project Robust was a, was a testing project. Um, so if you, know, if you put this up on your site and you know, your listeners can go to that second link there, um, automattack.com Robust, that lists all the advisories that, we, that myself, my research partner, and our, our, our testing partners have where we found bugs and reported them to DHS. And there's over 32 different advisories with, wow. with, with our names on them and the, and the products there. So that's what... Project Robust is the the source code for the fuzzer itself. I we tried to open source that, but it turns out there's no way to make money and monetize that because it's a turnkey product. People will pay for support or feature additions to something like a library, mm-hmm. where it's not the final product, where it's something that they're integrating and building something on. Um, but a, a turnkey software testing product, they're just going to take it, and you're going to end up spending more time, you know, answering questions and you know, making no money. <laughs> gotcha. So I, that ended up becoming a proprietary um, product that I actually sell and license. Okay. Cool. Cool. Well, I was just going to say, uh, you know, looking at the Autumn Attack website slash Robust, uh, you have a really good section on why, and it, it seems really important, if not us, who, and if not now, when. Like, so I'm kind of glad that you're, you're sort of on the, uh, you're, uh, you're kind of standing on the cliffs with your uh, lamps and kind of guiding everyone like, hey, there's danger here and it needs to be addressed. Well, there's a lot of people working in a lot of different spaces and security in this industry. And then you go to these conferences, you meet a lot of interesting people and you, you all, you feel like everybody kind of has their special power, right? <laughs> so I know a bunch of these guys and some of them, they're just, they're hardcore reverse engineers. They'll open up any firmware in Ida Pro and they can just, just look through, you know, the reverse engineered firmware and tell you where all the bugs or hard-coded passwords are. And it's like, Wow, that's pretty cool. Like, I don't know, I know so little about like assembly. That's an awesome special power you have there. Yeah. But you know, apparently, some of them think that the ability to you know like come up with tricky inputs is like a special <laughs> power too. So there's you know, it's definitely not just us. There's a whole bunch of a small group of people in this industry that are 
kind of attacking this problem from from different from different angles. Very cool, very cool. I you know I've really enjoyed talking to you, um, and hopefully we can have you back on sometime soon. Uh, maybe at, at, least, at most a year from now. I'd love to hear from you again if you're if you're open to it. How do people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, just by email. I mean, if you go to the company website and send something to info, it's going to be me that answers it. Yeah. So, you know, feel, feel free. Are, are you going to be at any conferences coming up or anything like that? I don't have anything on the horizon. I just got back from a conference two weeks ago in Miami, which is the one that I always try to go to every year. But I'm actually trying to tune down my travel yeah. a little bit, a little yeah. bit this year. That's good. Okay. Well... Well, good. Well, um, you know, we once again, thanks so much for being on the show. We've enjoyed it. Anything else you want to share with listeners before we go? Oh, no, that's great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, cool. Thanks for coming on. Uh, once again, this is Reflection as a Service. We are here to talk about software engineering and entrepreneurship, and hopefully we've done that tonight. I really appreciate Adam coming on the show. Once again, my name is Paul Merrill from Beaufort Fairmont. We are working to rid the world of bad code, and we do that through automated testing. So give us a yell at BeauftFairmont.com, and I'm joined by my partner, that's me, James Jeffers. And we just appreciate the heck out of you guys coming to listen to us. Please review us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Reach out to us. I'm at D. Paul Merrill on Twitter. James is J.D. Jeffers on Twitter. Uh, the podcast has a handle, Reflection AAS on Twitter. And let us know what you think. Let us know what you want to hear next, what you want us to talk about and do. Um, once again, I think we've got a little bit of time left before Tiska, the testing conference in Chapel Hill that's coming up in March. So if you're a tester and you're not signed up to go to that, you're just crazy. It's only $99 to go to that on, I believe, March the 3rd. Go Google Tisca 2016 and you'll find information about it or follow me on Twitter and you'll hear more about it. But it's a really great local conference on testing. I'll be there speaking. James, I know you're traveling out to Las Vegas soon and a couple of other places. Yeah, so I'm thinking about going to Elixir Days, which is in St. Augustine, Florida, on March 4th of 2016, and then MicroConf, which is in April 4th through 6th in Las Vegas, 2016. So that's where all the uh, entrepreneurial folk like to gather from around the United States. Uh, I know they have one in Europe, but um, I don't have bags of gold to do that yet, so... (laughs) But once again, we appreciate you guys uh, listening to us, and we hope to hear you on the next one. We're still looking forward to having Josh Anderson come out from the Dudes, the Dude Solutions, and uh, look forward to hearing him talk about Agile and what whatever he's up to at Dude Solutions. So, anyway, thanks for joining us. Have a really good night.